back to A Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. My name is David Carter, and joining me later in this episode, we will have my arch nemesis, Michaela Owens, on to uh, and our publications editor at the IU Cinema to talk about Douglas Sirk in honor of the 5 by series featuring the work of Douglas Sirk this semester at the IU Cinema. Very exciting piece of programming, if you ask me. We kind of just give a little primer on what to expect going into Douglas Sirk's work if you haven't had the opportunity to check it out before the IE Cinema's programming of it. So please stick around for that. But before we get to that, hey, things are going okay. It's winter. We're in the doldrums. It's been cold consistently for the last week. But because of that, trapped inside watching lots of movies, I'm here to mostly just be very excited about the fact that it seems like Francis Ford Coppola's Megalopolis seems to be moving forward says planning for a fall 2022 shoot. For those who don't know, Francis Ford Coppola hasn't made a movie in quite some time. Seems like he pretty much soft retired from directing and he's just been having his Coppola winery. And he recently sold or is planning to sell the Coppola winery to fund his 100 to $120 million like final last hurrah blank check passion project Megalopolis, a sci-fi film with a cast so far of Oscar Isaac, Kate Blanchett, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jessica Lange, and Zendaya, or Zendaya. Uh, it's just one of those great, like, if he pulls this off, if it comes out, career and arts just wrapped up in this nice little bow. He is the man who uh, made one from the heart, after all. It's in his blood to do things like this. I'm glad that if, he, if this is the way he's going to go out. Uh, he's going out big, so just excited for Megalopolis right now. So please support your local <laughs> Coppola winery. No, support <laughs> support Coppola wine. It's getting uh, passion projects made. So And then also just being very excited for Jackass Forever to finally come out. Plan on next week, if I can squeeze it in between all the various things I have to do. Doing a whole Jackass watch through. Probably just one, two, and three. The unrated cuts, not the .5 versions. Don't think I'll get around to Bad Grandpa. Still haven't seen it. But hey, maybe I will watch it. I love Johnny Knoxville. I love Jackass. One of my biggest regrets in life is not being able to go see Jackass 3D in theaters. And I'm not going to lie. I almost picked it as my staff selects this semester. I had a list of like 20 possible films to do for staff selects. And Jackass 3D was on the list. Along with Step Up 3D. But Another time, another place sometime in the future. Um, so I hope you guys are as excited to see the boys once again and some new faces. And I've watched that trailer so many times and it's been delayed. Uh, it was originally supposed to come out when Dune was supposed to come out and that was going to be a buck wild weekend. But Celevi, we're getting it next week. I'm very happy about it. Other things I'm happy about and excited for is our upcoming schedule at the IU Cinema for the week of January 31st. This week at the IU Cinema on Tuesday, February 1st at 7 p.m. at the low, low price of $4, we have Electra, the final film for this semester's President's Choice series. Just some things to mention about in-person screenings, as I do with all these, just right up front. Masks are required for all attendees in the cinema staff at indoor events due to our limited screening schedule and currently reduced seating capacity. We strongly encourage patrons to buy tickets online in advance to avoid getting sold out, and there will be no standby or late seating, so please purchase your tickets in advance. 
As I've said before, the President's Choice film series this semester revolves around Michael Kakoyanis, uh, Euphrates trilogy. Over a 15-year span, Greek master director Michael Kakoyanis adapted Euphrates' enduring trilogy, Iphigenia, The Trojan Women, and Electra. Combining elements of cinematic style from both the European art house and Hollywood filmmaking traditions, Kokeyanis films remind us of the continued immediacy and relevance of these ancient, tragic tales. These were, of course, curated by Indiana University Chancellor and former president Michael A. McGrobbie. Electra is from 1962. It is being projected on 35mm, so be excited about that. And what this film is about is after the murder of King Agamemnon, played by Giannis Furtis, at the hands of his intimate circle led by his wife, Timonestra, played by Aleka Katseli, Agamemnon's family disintegrates. His son, Orestes, is sent into exile, and his daughter, Electra, played by Irene Pappas, is imprisoned for several years and then married off to a peasant to marginalize her from the family and Agamemnon's legacy. Years later, Electra seeks revenge for her mother's treachery with the help of her brother and cousin, but their actions will forever change their fates. Electra won the award for Best Cinematic Transposition Adaptation at the 1962 Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. This is in Greek with subtitles. So once again, that is on Tuesday, February 1st at 7 p.m. It is $4. It is the final film in our President's Choice series, so please come out to that. Next up on Thursday, February 3rd at 7 p.m., also $4, we have the first in our Five by Douglas Cirque series, All That Heaven Allows. Me and Michaela get into what the Douglas Cirque series and who Douglas Cirque is later in the episode, so I will spare you the description of who Douglas Cirque is. And I am also introducing All That Heaven Allows at this screening, so I really do hope you guys come out for it. This is one of my all time favorite films. I have like my own. Vulture video-esque shelves that I will put like my favorite films on out front so for people can see. And I've themed them for Valentine's Day. And I recently just threw up there with the Before Trilogy and Bound and In the Mood for Love. I put All That Heaven Allows there. This is from 1955. It will be played on 35 millimeter, which is very exciting. When wealthy widow Carrie falls for her handsome young gardener, the relationship scandalizes her condescending children and country club friends. Torn between true love and the approval of everyone she knows, Carrie must decide if her own happiness is worth the scorn of those closest to her. Sumptuously photographed by Russell Metty, all that heaven allows reunited magnificent obsessions, Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson for one of cinema's finest, most deeply felt romances. This is an incredible looking film. It looks like candy. I want to eat it. Uh, and it just has one, it's just one of those films that the subtext in it and its influence has stretched so far and wide. It was, as I mentioned later in the episode, it was essentially remade by Rainer Werner Fassbender uh, with Ali Fear Eats the Soul, another director we've done a five by series for at the IU Cinema. Of the things playing of this series, this is my personal favorite. So I'm happy that it's kicking things off. So please come out to that. That is February 3rd, Thursday at 7 p.m. On Friday, February 4th, and playing until Friday, February the 11th, we have our special virtual event available starting at midnight. We have the Paul and Vieira Shorts program. Uh, some information about our virtual uh, event series and this one in particular. Only those registered for the February 10th virtual conversation for Pauline Vieira will have access to the shorts program. So make sure you are registered for the February 10th 
virtual conversation with Paul and Vieira. We're working with our film distribution friends at the African Film Festival to bring you the Pauline Vieira Shorts Program. A limited number of complimentary passes will be available to watch the program on a first-come, first-served basis. To participate in this virtual event, be sure to have downloaded the Zoom software to the device that you want to use to watch this event. Register for the February 10th Zoom webinar to receive a link through which you will join the event at the date and time noted. Read your Zoom registration confirmation email carefully for information on how to watch the shorts program prior to the February 10th event. You will be able to stream the film at no charge from February 4th to the 11th to the device of your choosing. For more information on accessing IU Cinema virtual events, please visit our Virtual Cinema Frequently Asked Questions page on our website. The shorts program ranges from 1955 to 1966, and there are five programs. There's Afrique Sorciene, and I'm going to apologize for these pronunciations. I'm trying my best. Una Nation es ne, A Nation is Born, Lamb from 1963, Sindili from 1965, In Mul from 1966. You can find more information about these films on the IU Cinema website. It's very exciting to have this filmmaker visiting virtually here, and I'm also very happy that the IU Cinema has decided to program some African film. African film I'm not very familiar with. As a matter of fact, I would say I have a huge blind spot for African film. Very much looking forward to it. And as I said, that becomes available starting Friday, February 4th. Also Friday, February 4th, part of our International Art House series at 7 p.m., $4 for students, $7 for non-students. We have the documentary directed by Jessica Bashir, Faya Dai. In her hypnotic documentary feature, Ethiopian-Mexican filmmaker Jessica Bashir explores the coexistence of everyday life and its mythical undercurrents. Through a deeply personal project, Bashir was forced to leave her hometown of Harar with her family as a teenager due to growing political strife. The film she returned to make about the city, its rural Oromo community of farmers, and the harvesting of the country's most sought-after export, the euphoria-inducing cot plant, is neither a straightforward work of nostalgia nor an issue-oriented doc about a particular drug culture. Rather, Bashir has constructed something dreamlike, a film that uses light, texture, and sound to illuminate the spiritual lives of people whose experiences often become fodder for ripped-from-the-headlines tales of migration. It is in Emmerich with English subtitles. And once again, that is Friday at February 4th at 7 p.m. I really hope people take a chance on this and decide to check it out. That is also playing on Sunday, February 6th at 1 p.m. The price uh, remains the same, $4 for students, $7 for non-students. And finally, on Friday, February 4th, At 10 p.m., we have our next Not Quite Midnight's screening of CryptoZoo, one of the new films of the Not Quite Midnight series. This is the one that I haven't heard nothing about and have never seen. This is directed by Dash Shaw. It's from 2021. It is an animated film from visionary comic book writer, artist, filmmaker Dash Shaw's vibrant, fantastical animated feature follows CryptoZoo keepers through a richly drawn, hallucinatory world as they struggle to capture a Baku a legendary dream-eating hybrid creature, and begin to wonder if they should display these rare beasts in the confines of a zoo, or if these mythical creatures should remain hidden and unknown. Featuring the voice talents of Lake Bell, Zoe Kazan, and Michael Sarah. I'm excited for it. Going and actually pretty much blind, only based off of that description. If you can, please come out to that. It seems like it'll be a good time. Titan, 
was a blast. The one happening tomorrow, as when I'm recording this, of Possession, I also expect to be a blast. The Not Quite Midnight series is always a ton of fun. You should definitely keep your eyes peeled for the rest of things happening in that series. So once again, that is CryptoZoo, 10 p.m. Friday, Not Quite Midnight. I hope to see you there. $4. And with that, let's turn it over to past David and Michaela so they can talk to you about Douglas Sirk, his influence, and how hot Rock Hudson is. So join us there. Hey. I'm Michaela Owens, and I am the publications editor for IU Cinema. Nice to have you back, I guess, Michaela. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. (laughs) It is genuinely wonderful to have you back, especially for what we are here to talk about today, which is to give people a little primer, which... I guess, as I just told you, people may need now in 2021 uh, a little primer on the director, Douglas Sirk. (laughs) God, 2022. It's jail January. I get a mulligan. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But yes, we are here to talk about Douglas Sirk because the Ice Cinema has the Five by series highlighting Douglas Sirk's films this semester. And I just wanted to talk to you about that. Usually with the classic Hollywood series, the past couple of years, you've had a hand in helping program them. But also, I know that Brittany is a big fan of Douglas Sirk herself. I know you're in the trenches helping and giving your two cents on things. And I trust no one at the Ice Cinema about classic film more than you. So figured you'd be a good person to talk to about who Douglas Sirk is, why these particular films got picked to be programmed at the Ice Cinema, kind of his influence. So how did you come to Douglas Sirk? <laughs> um, yeah, he's kind of like one of those filmmakers like Hitchcock, who is just always there when you're like a classic movie fan. So I actually can't remember like what my first Cirque was, how I first knew about it, because it it's just like he's always there. And as soon as you get into classic movies, that's one of the like biggest filmmakers that there is, because you can't deny the power of his 1950s melodramas. So basically, he's just been making me cry for... <laughs> Over a decade now. Um, But there's there's still some I haven't seen of his. But what I really enjoy is looking at uh, his movies from before his 50s melodramas. Because that's what he's most known for. But that's really only like a handful of movies. Yeah, so. I wanted to, I specifically wanted to talk about that because while I am a Cirque, I'm a Cirque fan, but like a Cirque novice, and I've really just seen these 1950s melodramas. He had like a whole career before he got ingested into the Hollywood system and actually came to him like probably a lot of people, which is just with The Imitation of Life, uh, I would say is probably his most notable film. I feel like most people know what that film is, or at least like know what the premise is. But I kind of didn't know until recently that obviously I knew he had fled Germany because of Nazi occupation and rise of fascism. uh, And he retired in Switzerland after like having these successes with these 1950s melodrama kind of retired on top. Yeah, honestly, like kind of like went out on a high note and just yeah, after Imitation of Life, which was his biggest hit, I believe he was just kind of like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Which is nuts. So I know you're kind of working on a little bit of a piece about Douglas Sirk for the blog, unless you're not and I can cut this part of the episode it, out but <laughs> actually to be weird it's actually focused on um rock hudson wearing plaid <laughs> in oh. all that heaven allows 
So you've upgraded the the subject matter for your piece, I see. I feel super... Good job, Michaela. I feel super weird for writing it, but I was like, I just... I have to. I have to. No, you to. do. Please do not apologize for being beautiful. Please don't apologize for that. Thanks. Well, I know you're more entrenched in Cirque, so do you happen to know his like history leading up to these 1950s melodramas and you know kind of those earlier films? Yeah, so he was born in Germany. He worked in the theater there and was kind of like a big theater director. And then his second wife was Jewish, so with the rise of the Nazi regime, obviously had to leave. Uh, so he came to the United States, changed his name to Douglas Cirque, and got a contract with Columbia, where he did just a bunch of different genres. So he did comedy, he did musicals, he did film noir. Then he got this contract with Universal um, in the early 50s, and that's kind of what changed the game. That's when he started doing all the melodramas, and you know that's what he was known for. And then, like we said, in 59, went out on top, went back to Europe. He taught a little bit, like at a film school in Munich in the 70s, and then you know died in his 80s, I think, let's see, in 87. So, like, I was reading something that said that his his iconography, what he's best known for, is kind of frozen in time because he stopped in 59. So the things that he's best known for, they're just kind of always there. We never got to see, like, what Douglas Sirk movies were in the 60s or the 70s. I find that so interesting because, to me, Douglas Sirk is a quintessential 50s director, meaning, like, his films, like what his films look like is what the 1950s looks like, is yeah. what, how I perceive it to have looked like now. I know that's actually not the case. And it's he's very much a person who's way into mise-en-scene and uh, he's very, his technicolor pictures, like everything's very vibrant. I know mm-hmm. the 50s didn't look like that, but to me, that is what the 50s yeah. looked like. Well, it's funny because that's kind of the point of his 50s movies is that he's kind of satirizing and exaggerating what the 50s looked like and what they were supposed to feel like so he's kind of like poking fun at you know housewives in the 50s like we have this weird idea nowadays of what that was like and it's not always true women weren't just happily like brainwashed into staying at home that may have been the idea that was being given or suggested through different media i mean you can't tell me all women were happy to be at home (laughs) like that's stupid (laughs) i mean i mean and history has proven that like you know as far as like you know accounts of like exactly perceptions of what it actually was yeah yeah. i mean like betty for dance the feminine mystique just like blows out wide open and cirque was very much aware of that in the 50s and was pointing it out to us in the 50s so that's just really fascinating to me that he kind of had this like other sense for what was really going on and what was kind of hidden under the surface. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of another director, a lot of directors very much influenced by Douglas Sirk. And it reminds me a lot of how David Lynch operated in the 80s with like Blue Velvet where, you know, which he's obviously probably riffing off of Douglas Sirk movies during that like opening sequence of Blue Velvet where everything is kind of vibrant and like, unsettlingly peachy keen and everything is you know Kyle McLaughlin's an all-American boy and all these all these other things he's a director I think that like captures the underlying sinister nature of like suburbia and like middle-class America I guess with circuits maybe more moneyed people I guess you'd say like I'd see his, his films more fault revolve around people who I guess you would say are high class as opposed to middle class people Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the satirization point because until, I don't know, maybe even like a year ago, I actually didn't catch on to that. I mean, I always, 
I always thought melodrama could only come from a very sincere place, which obviously now I know is not the case. But I always thought like if he's making these melodramas that are like aimed at, you know, specifically at like women and he's making weepies and like that's why they had to be reclaimed later because everyone was like, oh, yeah, he just made like these kind of cheesy women's pictures. They did what they were supposed to do, blah, blah. And then obviously a generation directors came and reclaimed them and theorists came back and claimed them. And feminists reclaimed him as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, women, queer people, like Gen X directors, like these are all people who like took these films and like boasted them into the mainstream. I know at Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water Oscar win, he said he was like, Growing up in Mexico as a kid, I, I was a, a big admirer of foreign film, foreign film like uh, E.T. or William Wyler or uh, uh, Douglas Sirk. Is a very cute statement. Which may have made me like pump my fist when I was watching. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, Saper Water, very indebted to the films of Douglas yeah. Sirk. You know, if Douglas Sirk had the technology to put a fish person in his movie, <laughs> eh, maybe it would have. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I find him infinitely fascinating, mostly be not mostly because, but because of that reclamation and because he is highlighting these things uh, about society at this point and they're not overly sincere despite being melodramas i'd say that's like a pretty uh, distinct facet of his style and i don't know i just find him to be a filmmaker i mentioned this right before we started recording to me he is like an alfred hitchcock where until i had told people that i was recording this episode about douglas sirk with you they would say oh i don't know who douglas sirk is and i was i was kind of taken aback because i always assumed that he was one of those like yeah you got your john fords you got your alfred hitchcocks you got your D- douglas sirk like these were just names that even someone who was just mildly interested in movies would know but i think maybe there's kind of a people might know the work but not the actual person disconnect kind of happening yeah and it's funny because once you can recognize douglas sirk's style like the vibrant colors the like really complex mise-en-scene with all these different objects that have all these different meanings and things like that, it's instantly recognizable. So you can watch something like Tarantino or like David Lynch or Wong Kar Wai, John Waters. I mean, so many people have been influenced by him and have paid homage to, I mean, Todd Haynes is like a- <laughs> Far, Far From, from Heaven. Yeah, is just literally just like all Cirque all day long. Yeah, there's Rainer Werner Fassbender who made Ali Fear Eats yeah. the Soul, which is just a remake, a light remake of All the Heaven Allows. Yep. Which Rainer Werner Fassbender has, I was reading the like Criterion booklet essay about All the Heaven Allows like mm-hmm. earlier today, and it has a interview with Rainer Werner Fassbender in it. And what he says of Douglas Sirk is that Sirk has said that film is blood, tears, violence, hate, death, and love. Which, would you agree with that statement based on what you've seen of... Douglas yeah. Sirk's work. Do you think he conveys all those <laughs> concepts within? Yeah. You know, you know, obviously not within the literal right. sense, but I would. Fi- I think all those elements are like there, at least in like a. Uh, yeah, I think so. Like a thematic yeah. sense. Yeah, but what I like about his movies is that you can watch them just for pure entertainment, which is what I did when I first started watching them. Or they can be like some kind of emotional catharsis for you. I mean, like if you're going to put on Magnificent Obsession, for me at least, I know I'm going to cry my eyes out. So (laughs) that's kind of why I'm putting it on. Well, that and Brock Hudson. That's another conversation. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, we could talk about Rock Hudson uh, uh, for a little bit. Yeah, we'll return to him. Uh, But so you can do that or you can look at it as camp. 
a lot of queer audiences have looked at him as a camp director, and you can definitely see it. I mean, just look at Lana Turner in Imitation of Life. That is... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so satire, or you can look at it as like serious critique of whatever the movie's about. So there's all these different ways, all these different lens you can apply to his work. And it's not like a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. You can do with it whatever you want basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean that his his work does feel very malleable and I I do wonder if that's probably because he did from the word go kind of inject this very intentional as you brought up this very intentional. Not, it's not really satire cuz like nothing's that pointed in his movies, I guess I would say. Maybe it maybe maybe it is maybe he would define it as satire, I don't know, but like I would say like mm-hmm. He is poking at things. I mean, even like mm. All That Heaven Allows, which is my, I bring it up a lot because it is my favorite Douglas Sirk movie. And yeah. as I mentioned earlier, like I really do need to see his pre-50s melodrama movies. But there is this very kind of sharp sense in that movie of like, this is a May-September romance within the fiction of the film in like the meta of, of the film. Like the lead actress has like aged out of roles and is like a little too old for the things and She's seeing Rock Hudson and being paired with Rock Hudson, who is like young and vibrant and, you know, has all these things. But like he is secretly homosexual at this point within the public eye. But people knew Hollywood. Yeah, out in yeah. Hollywood, people knew, but like the public didn't know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there is a little bit of that like poking of like the hypocrisy from like, you know, all of her like friends and her children. But then you have this like other queer layer of like, well, this is a gay actor who is shacking up with an older woman. It almost seems like a beard yeah. relationship if you were to like examine yep. it that way, even though within the text of the film, Rock Hudson isn't queer. I don't know. I find all that mm-hmm. like very fascinating. And I think that's why people keep returning to his work so much. Like you said, it's mm-hmm. just it lends itself to a lot of interpretations and you can pull a lot of disparate elements. Mm-hmm. You know, someone like Pedro Almodovar, another Douglas Sirk acolyte, yep. obviously <laughs> thematically pulling tapping into that like campiness but also just pulling the visual acumen from it like his movies like douglas Sirk's mm-hmm. movies are beautiful like they're these like lush you want to eat them technicolor movies yeah but speaking of rock hudson <laughs> would you like to uh, you know would you say this was his leading man yeah and that was his intention kind of so they first got paired with has anybody seen my gal from 1952 which is this just really cute fluffy comedy um, which we'll be showing at IU Cinema it's the last film in our series so Universal at the time didn't really have like any leading men that you would know like on site or anything like that so you'd think like you know MGM has like Clark Gable and Van Johnson and da 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 like 20th Century Fox has like Don Amici so you have like these kind of figureheads for the studios and stuff but Universal didn't really have that so Douglas Sirk wanted to develop one and so he saw Rock Hudson in this I think it's a boxing movie called Iron Man which I haven't seen he saw Rock Hudson and wasn't like bowled over by him but was like there's something there and the camera absolutely like loves this person and like can pick up something there so I'm gonna work on that so he kind of like took Rock Hudson under his wing because Rock was not super well known he was slowly like climbing his way up so yeah so Cirque he kind of saw him as like a father figure and they really worked together well and with Magnificent Obsession which was their third movie I believe it just exploded because it was kind of the first time that 
female audiences. We're seeing Rock Hudson as like a viable female or uh, romantic lead. Mm. So, I mean, God, can you imagine like 1954 See, seeing Rock for Hudson the for the first time? Oh my time, God. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the word Adonis gets tossed around a lot, but, like, that is yeah. what he, like, he seems as if yeah. he was sculpted out of marble. Like, he's a crazy-looking man. Yeah, well, I, I gotta admit, when I was I was rewatching bits and pieces of All That Heaven Allows for my blog piece about it, I was just embarrassing myself left and right, <laughs> just, like, full-on swooning, like, screaming at the TV, it just... <laughs> Like, pretty much melting into my couch just from, like, watching Rock Hudson on my, like, little TV. So I can only imagine what weirdness I'm going to be doing at (laughs) IU Cinema when we show that movie next week. I just need to hear one little squeal. That's all. (laughs) I can do that for you because it is. Just a little bit. It was embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, so Cirque and Hudson worked together on nine films total. One of those movies, Cirque, um, was uncredited. I th- uh, Never Say Goodbye. It's another 50s melodrama. But he did do some work on that, so a lot of people count it as one of his movies. So yeah, it was a huge partnership. And it's not really one that gets discussed a lot. I mean, yeah. you think of like Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock are well-known. Jack Lemmon, Billy Wilder, yeah. well-known. John Ford, John Wayne. But <laughs> Yeah. So Cirque and Hudson, they were just really... It's really interesting, especially when you think about how Cirque, I mean, as you said, Rock Hudson was gay. Everybody in Hollywood knew that. Cirque had to have known that. So when Cirque constantly keeps casting him as the romantic lead and stuff, you just have to wonder, like, was Cirque having a little fun at that? (laughs) I mean, that's a fun, that's like a fun thing to consider, especially, you know, if you're doing little in things for other artists, Mm -hmm. you know, or people in the know, like maybe very intentionally making all that heaven allows. Like maybe that is just kind Mm -hmm. of the concept he came up with. He's like, yeah, I'm going to cast this like very young gay man with an older actress and like everyone who knows, knows. And that's like a little like wink. Then that gets picked up as subtext later for people who weren't in the Mm -hmm. know at the time. I think it's a great pairing. I I'd like the films that you mentioned and all the heaven allows. Like I like all those pairings. I'd like to see some of the earlier ones, mm-hmm. if possible, if that uh, is ever in the cards at some point. But I wanted to talk about one more person that Douglas Sirk worked with, mostly because she's on my mind because of the bad Aaron Sorkin uh, movie. Uh, <laughs> I know. Oh God. Lord, uh, another uh-huh. Douglas Sirk favorite of mine, uh, starring Lucille Ball. Mine too. Yep. I didn't know if you hadn't knew any background on that movie. That's just a movie I've seen but never have like delved into. I have been trying to find background on this movie because I'm introducing it mm-hmm. in February. So I've been like trying to find bits and pieces to work into my introduction. And it's been kind of hard. Like I have Lucille Ball's autobiography. She doesn't even mention the movie at all. Interesting. Which a lot of old Hollywood actors, when they like write their biographies, sometimes just totally glide over movies because they weren't alive when these movies kind of came back around. So they kind of think like, nobody's interested in this. Like, I'm not going to bother talking about it. So it's kind of understandable, but it's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been able to find much about it, but it is such a great movie. And I cannot tell you. A little party Brittany and I had in the office when we found out we got it. <laughs> we were so excited because that was like the one movie we were like, we really, really, really have to get this because oh, yeah. I can guarantee you that a lot of people 
do not know this movie and they really should. I mean, I, that was a movie that I saw, like we had to track down through like interlibrary loan to watch because mm-hmm. at, because at the point I was seeing it years and years ago, like there wasn't like a Blu-ray of it, whatever DVD existed was just some bad mass manufactured thing or another. And it like really shocked me like for how good this movie was, how little is known about it, especially now that you're telling me like you're actually having trouble like finding anything about it. I think it's one of like Lucille Ball's best performances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, say the words Lucille Ball and Sleuth and you've got a winner. I mean, just like it's such a great character because the story for people who don't know it is that there is this serial killer in London who has been killing these young women, including Lucille Ball's best friend. So she kind of gets involved with Scotland Yard and they have her working as an undercover detective, basically, and trying to help them solve the mystery. And George Sanders is in it Mm -hmm. as like her love interest, but might be the bad guy because, of course, it's George Sanders. (laughs) Like, of course. And then Boris Karloff shows up for just like one scene where he's playing this crazy, like fallen from grace fashion designer. It's just insane. Yeah, I would say of all the films playing uh, for this five by series, I'd say this is the most like interesting one. Like. It's just, yes. just, it's a little, it feels different from the other things that are being shown. And it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I said, it's kind of like a, a, a hidden gem. So I, I would hope that people uh, take a chance on it. And, you know, watch mm-hmm. something good featuring the name Lucille Ball. Yes, please. <laughs> oh my god! I know that at Ugh. Sundance, and I'm sure Brittany or Alicia maybe saw it, there is like a Lucille Ball documentary. Like a yeah, I doc. haven't heard much about Man, it. Yeah, but... same. I haven't really heard much. Maybe hasn't played yet, but I'd be curious to see what, what that's been all about. But before I let you go, Michaela, because uh, we said we, mm-hmm. I promised I would keep this short. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could go on Oh, on yeah. Well, <laughs> look, there, there could be a follow-up. There might be a follow-up to this episode, like a proper deep dive discussion on one of his films, since this is a five-by series that's playing for the entirety of the semester. Yep. And I just wanted you to tell the audience, did you help program this at all? I know you do sometimes. Yeah, 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 a little bit. It was Brittany's idea, and so main credit goes to Brittany. I was just kind of there going, yeah, that one. No, not that one. (laughs) Good, good, good. You know, just for the audience, if this is someone's first time going to see a Douglas Sirk film, what would you like to let them know? And what we've kind of told them what to expect, but what little words of wisdom would you give them to send them off to go buy their tickets? Watch them however you want to watch them. If you want to go into All That Heaven Allows and just, you know, just let it be an emotional journey, just let the entertainment take over, like, absolutely do that. That's usually how I watch his movies. Just because I feel <laughs> I feel stupid and don't feel like doing all of the labor it could take. Because his films just work on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. If you want to look at it academically, absolutely do that. But Yeah, just let it wash over you however you want that to happen. And also, like we've been saying, take a chance on his earlier works because they're just so interesting. I mean, his his career did not start and end with 50s dramas. So Sleep My Love, that was one that I wanted to do. And partly because it's Don Amici. And as I have established... I love Don Amici. So, and it's also just a, a good movie. It's a film noir with Claudette Colbert. Um, again, a woman at the center of his movies, which is another thing that I just love. Mm-hmm. So it's just really interesting to go back and look at a director who's known primarily for one thing and then seeing that, oh no, like his, his career was a lot 
of other things. And the things he could do with black and white is, are still like pretty stunning. Yeah, just go watch all the movies. Go watch them all. <laughs> go watch every single Douglas Sirk movie. <laughs> I will say, as the physical media person, I do know Kino Lorber has been doing a great job of mm-hmm. issuing the like the lesser known Douglas Sirk movies. Like I think I wrote very briefly on like Battle mm-hmm. Hymn starring yep. Rock Hudson uh, for one of my Blu-ray roundups. And that's like a fascinating little piece of like I just call it it is it is propaganda, but a fascinating and sweet piece of propaganda starring Rock, Rock Hudson. But definitely go check those out. And as I probably said earlier in this episode, you can purchase your tickets in advance through the IU Cinema website. We hope to see you there. I will be introducing all that heaven allows. Are you introducing anything else besides Lord, or are you do pretty much doing everything else besides all that heaven allows? I, I am pretty much doing everything else. So I'm doing uh, Lord. Magnificent Obsession, and Has Anybody Seen My Gal? Since Sleep My Love is in collaboration with the City Lights film series, Caleb Allison, I believe, will be introducing that one. And Caleb's introductions are always fantastic. Well, uh, Michaela, I know you usually just like plug in the blog. If there's anything else besides the blog you'd like to plug, go ahead. (laughs) But if not, yeah, go and read the blog, everybody. We're doing... It's great. Yeah. It's good. We got we got like a new person and yeah. everyone's turning in great work this semester. Yeah. yeah. I don't the know. blog has been busy. So much. So much yes. stuff. Read the blog. Go see Douglas Cirque movies. <laughs> okay. There is something I have to plug. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything, but I'm just so excited about it. Sure. The Criterion Channel has a uh, Nicholas Brothers series on there right now of three movies. I mean, check them all out. Nicholas Brothers, you absolutely cannot go wrong with them. They are fantastic but there's one movie that i'm going to be writing for our um, monthly movie roundup which will be coming out next week sun valley serenade with sonia henny oh it's one of my absolute favorite movies ever it's not going to be for everybody i don't care please see it because <laughs> i mean it's just yeah sona henny was a olympic ice skater figure skater who has all these records that still haven't been broken. And she's just amazing and cute. And the movie's cute. And it has Glenn Miller's orchestra, which is just, it just bowls me over. So anyway, <laughs> I screamed when I saw Criterion Channel actually had this movie on their service because it's not on DVD anywhere. It's not on Blu-ray. It's very hard to access. I've only been watching it on YouTube. So I just have to get that out well, there. Well, check it out in HD. Yeah. Get out there, people. Well, you know, I'll tie it back around to what we were just talking about, because I actually remember this popped up into my Twitter feed right before we started. In February, the Criterion Channel has the Douglas Sirk Melodrama collection of films, which features, you know, if you can't make it out to the cinema or you're immunocompromised or any, you know, for whatever reason you can't come to these in person, uh, it features All That Heaven Allows, Magnificent Obsession, Imitation of Life, and Written on the Wind. So you can find that on the Criterion Channel in February. But thank you so much, Michaela, for being on this episode. This is lovely as always, despite, you know, it being (laughs) you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I really had to, like, choke down some bile during this whole thing. but (laughs) I know, just both of us trying not to gag. But thank you so much for being on. A pleasure as always. Hopefully I see you in person again soon. Uh, I better see you at All That Heaven Allows, so. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, you definitely won't see me there. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> You're going to have to do the introduction for me. No, you will definitely see me all that. My introduction would literally just be kids are awful, don't have them, and <laughs> Rock Hudson and Platt. Thank you. Enjoy the movie. You know <laughs> well, I'm jotting that down in my notes that have been taken for this introduction. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been A Place for Film. We'll see you at the movies. Good night.